the nature of uh, Father's Day in a lot of ways. You know, this, this, you know, I mean, last Christmas, on Christmas Day, I, I flew my family out to Disneyland and to the beach, and we had a great time. And what thanks do they give me? They make me wear a, a silly, ugly tie every Father's Day for the last, like, 30 years. And what do I do? I put a silly, ugly picture of them on the big screens every year. It's called behaviorals, and we're going to get them to try to stop giving me ties, and I'll stop doing the pictures. So they're there. <clears throat> anyway, happy Father's Day. We're in the book of Psalms this summer, and we're trying to make the most of our Psalms. We're, there's a tear-off right here. We're trying to memorize Psalm 30, uh, 23 together. We're on verse 4. You can keep that, meditate on that, memorize that, mull that over, make sure it all works for you. Today we're going to look at Psalm 139. Uh, one commentator calls it the crown of all, of all psalms, the crown of all psalms. This psalm tells us so much about the nature of God and his attributes of God and how those attributes are used to know David and you and me. This Last week we looked at Psalm 8, and who is man that you would be mindful of him. That's mankind. That you was plural. That pronoun was plural. This, this one is very singular. It's an individual person. This, is, this psalm was written to you. It is David talking about <clears throat> the essence of the human condition. That's what this psalm is about. And this is the essence of the human condition, that we want to be known and we want to be loved. And as we want to be known so that we can be loved. And yet, we're not known. And so, we're not loved. Why aren't we known deeply, intimately? Don't even have to ask, do I? Because we're afraid. And why are we afraid? Don't even have to ask. That's easy. Because we know in the deepest recesses, the river that runs through us is vile. That we are monsters. That we are our own enemy. This is the shame that is within us. We don't want people to know us and because they wouldn't love that. So sometimes a lot of people will settle for... Uh, the, I would say second best, but it's not even in the game. It's more, more better word, counterfeit. You, I will project an image of myself. You love that. But that's not loving me. It's loving the image. It's not the real, it's not the real thing. And so we're kind of stuck. We want to be known but not found out. And this, this, this raging desire within us to be known and to, and to be loved is a, a, a call, a primal call, from the Garden of Eden, that we could be naked and unashamed. That's how we were designed, naked, to be known, fully known. That's what the word means, and, and to be unashamed, without vile or guilt. And so in the good old days, we could do this. We could, we could be known because we had no shame, and so we could love ourselves, <clears throat> and we could love other people, and it was all good. But, but those days are gone. Sin enters the world, shame with it. We have to protect ourselves. We don't want to be known, so we cannot be loved. And this is the essence of the human condition. We are radically threatened by, self, by being found to be deeply understood. And we are radically in need of intimate love. 
So uh, singer-songwriters, our poets of the day, our prophets of the day, they write about this. Uh, you can pick a song. There, there are many of them out there. I've picked one by Paula Cole. She's a great writer, and she writes this. The song is called Me, okay? It's, it says something, doesn't it? The title alone. And she says, listen, I, I can't even ask for the thing that I love. And, and, and that's because I, I, I can't be known. And the reason I can't be known is because I know I'm the monster. So I just put out this image of myself, and that's not even me. Listen to the lyrics to the song with that in mind. I'm not the person who is singing. I'm the silent, the real me. I'm the silent one inside. I'm not the person who laughs at the jokes. I just do that to encourage people's egos. I am like winter. I'm dark, cold, female. It is me who is my enemy. It is he, me who beats me up. It is me who makes the monsters. It is me who steals the confidence. It is me who is weak. It is me who is too shy to ask for anything that I love. I am too shy to ask for anything that I love, that thing I love. And then she stops and she says, I know there's something better. There must be something better. Here comes Psalm 39, the answer to the problem. David is an anointed poet. He is a genius in his ability to communicate not just truth, but the meaning of that truth. And in this passage, because it's a psalm, it's a song, he's going to tell us about the attributes of God, but not just the attributes of God. The meaning of those attributes will be found in the emotions of the passage. They will be found in the feelings, the, the, the transformational power that we're going to see that takes place here is because he's fully engaged with his soul in this. And so we're going to be or exalting those things. So you need to be listening for the emotion, for the passion, with your soul, with your spirit. It, this is not an exercise just in the intellect and knowing the attributes of God, but how they, how they cause our souls to respond to that. The first passion that we're going to be listening for is this idea of David's threat. He's feeling threatened by the all-knowing nature of God, and his, his knowledge is infinite, and it is, it is inescapable. So in Psalm 139, verse 1, he says, Yahweh, you have searched me and know me. That's the theme of the whole psalm. You have searched me and know me, and you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my laying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word was on my tongue, behold, Yahweh, you knew it all together. You hem me in. You're behind me and you're before me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too overwhelming for me. It's, it's high. I, I, I can't attain it. David's saying, this knowledge that you have of my inner soul is suffocating me. I am trapped here. You search me. And then the idea, the word, the word for search there, is, which is, again, the theme of it, is it's to explore, to dig down, to, to investigate, to, to sift. That's one translation, to sift. It's, it's this in scrutiny of the minutia of our motives, our thoughts, not just our choices, but our prejudices and our values. And God knows the depths of this. And, again, the meaning of this passage is in the emotion, to remind you. You hem me in. You're behind me and you're before me. You lay your hand upon me. The knowledge is too overwhelming for me. It is high. I cannot touch it. You hem me in. 
One, pass, you know, one translation says, you enclose me. That phrase is used when you besiege a city and you have it surrounded and you've cut, out the, cut off the front door, the back door. The, the, we've cut off your water supply. There's no trap to get out of, you, to, you know, some trap door to get out of. We have hemmed you in. You, you can't go anywhere. And David is saying, look, this, this idea of your knowledge to me, this attribute that you are all-knowing and you're applying it to, to your understanding of my soul, it's overwhelming. It's too overwhelming. He says it's too much. It's too, it's too painful. And so what do you do when you feel this kind of threat? Fight or flight, right? And so you probably aren't going to try to pick a fight with God, so you go with, you know, flight. And that's what he does. The very next sentence, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Where, where, where can I get out of here? How do I get out of here? The same words that are used when Jonah is, you know, Right, brought in the presence of God. He says, I, got, I can't be with you. I, so he's, he, he gets on a boat. I'm going to get on a boat. I'll get away from God. Well, that didn't work out for him. And this idea that David knows this other attribute of God, that he's all present. He's fully all present all the time. So wherever he goes, there's a singular word there that will be used. I translate it as you. Not you are there, but you. And literally the word is face. Everywhere he goes, face of God. Here's what it looks like. If I, <clears throat> pardon me, if I ascend to heaven, you. If I make my dead in the grave, you. I, if I take wings in the mornings and, and dwell in the outermost parts of the sea, even if your hand shall lead me and, and your right hand shall hold me, if, sure, if, if I say, surely a darkness, that'll cover me, and, and light about me and the light about me in the night, that doesn't work because even in darkness, is, it's not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for you, for darkness is as light with you. There's no place for him to go, to hide. This is the human story. This is the human condition. It has always been the human condition. We were meant to be naked and unashamed, to be known and to be loved. That's our design. And, and, and if you even if you go back to the original story, it's the same story over and over and again. It's just, I don't know, played out with different flavors. Adam and Eve were meant to know and be known and to love and be loved. And they knew each other in innocence, right? And every evening, right, in the cool of the evening, Yahweh would come and walk through the garden with them. And then sin enters the world. And when sin enters a, a person's life, there is shame and blame. Always. Always. It's predictable. And on, on that day, shame came upon them. And they realized, oh, no, 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 it's almost time. It's getting cooler. It's in the cool of the evening. Yahweh will be coming. Yahweh will be coming. And look at us. We are naked now. Quick, find a fig leaf and hide behind this bush. And so they do that. And, they, and they're hiding from Yahweh as though that could happen, right? And, and while they're hiding, Yahweh comes upon them and... and he, explain yourself. He says, well, we see ourselves naked. And so we had to cover up, right? Who, who said you were naked? Why is there shame now? Why are you hiding? And then comes the blame, right? It's the serpent. It's the woman. This, this is our new posture, right? It, that's our new posture. That's what we do. And it's, it's the case, 
we, we, we get caught doing something that we thought we would never do. We get caught doing that, and we, we go, wow, you know, shame. And then what, it doesn't take long. How, how dare you right, bring it up? How dare you hold me accountable? What do you think happened when Eve heard Adam say, it was the woman you gave me? She went, this man, Adam, cannot be trusted to know me. That's the new us. Hiding. Afraid. Where can I go from your presence? How can I find a place that would be safe from your unfiltered and complete knowledge of who I am? It's the gaze of Yahweh that is suffocating David, giving him this idea of just claustrophobia. He is looking for relief. He's trying to hide behind some bush. There is no place safe. And it gets worse because it's not just the all-knowing God that knows his words before he speaks. It's not just the fact that he can't, he's going, wherever he goes, Yahweh will fully be there, you face. He finally, the power of God was the attribute that was used to create David. It was God that chose the, the, the threads that wove him. No one else could see this happening. No one else knew what was going into the, the inner soul of David. God did. The point is how well Yahweh knows David. Is, we have a new attribute that enters the story here when he says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Inward parts. That's my inmost being, right? That's the, your essence, your, your, your identity. And, and so you can see in this, in this whole, like, again, this mood is that all of, all of these attributes, these expressions of definitions of God are surrounding David and they're calling, causing dreadful fear and an inner angst because he can't be known on this level because then he could never be loved. And so David has to... He's trapped. This is the human condition. We're trapped. We need to be loved, but we can't be known. We won't let people know us. I am, it is me who is my enemy. It is me who, who beats me up. It is me who makes the monsters. It is me who strips my confidence. It's me who's too weak. It is me who's too shy to ask for anything I love, that thing I love. But there must be something better right? There must be something better. We have, we, we have to go back to the garden, and that garden does not exist. It's gone. And is it any wonder that now we find our fig leaves and our bushes in working, you know, so much. We can't not work, some people. We, we, some other people, they find their, their security, right, their hiddenness in their inability to make commitments in relationships. Other people overcommit in a relationship, and they need to be needed. We're compulsive about how we look. Whatever it might be, the idea here is we're, we're sending out this uh, image of ourselves, right? But, but that's, that's not you, the one that's singing. You're the quiet one. Well, you'll like, this, you'll like that one better. Maybe you'll love that one. Yeah, maybe. But that's not even you. 
We want to be known, but we don't want to be found out. C.S. Lewis probably wrote a short story. People don't know for sure, but it's called The Shoddy Lands. The Shoddy Lands. And in this short story, he is meeting his best friend, uh, Daryl's fiance for the first time. Her name is Peggy. And then, like, like without, you know, warning and without really even understanding what's happening to him, when they're speaking, uh, Lewis is, I don't know, like, tr- transmitted or something into the mind of Peggy. And now he's seeing all of life from Peggy's perspective. And, and with all of her values, her innermost being, right, her innermost parts, and he sees her life as the shoddy lands. They're dull and vague and vain. And here, here's what he writes about. He goes, <clears throat> so I was, uh, just for a second or so, in, uh, let into Peggy's mind, at least to the extent of her seeing the world around her, the world that exists for her. And at the center of this world was this swollen image of herself, remodeled to be like the girls in advertisements as much as possible anyway. So round this was grouped clear and distinct images of those things that she really cared about. But beyond those things, the whole earth and the sky were just a vague blur. Trees were no good, the grass was no good, the sky was no good, flowers were no good. Well, except for daffodils. Daffodils she liked. People were no good. The women's shops, they were vivid. They were important to her. The daffodils were especially instructive. Flowers only exist to her if they're the sort of flowers that could be cut and put into vases and made into bouquets. Flowers for them, of themselves, the flowers that you find in the forest, they're of no need to her. And so we're neglected. And Lewis sees that this is a sad, sorry way of seeing life. And he feels pity for his friend Daryl that he would be marrying her. And then he realizes something. Hold on. It goes on. He goes, uh, this was a most disquieting experience. Not only because I'm sorry for poor Daryl, but suppose this sort of thing were to become common, that he could have this shoddy lands experience. And what if... Over time, I were not the explorer, but the explored. See, Lewis is all but all concerned about, you know, seeing poor Peggy and seeing how superficial and shallow her world was by seeing her innermost being. And then like, gosh, that's a poor Peggy. Uh-oh, somebody could be in my head right now. Somebody could be seeing life from the way I see things. Maybe somebody's seeing my shoddy land trapped. I want to be known. No, I don't. I want to be loved, but I can't. And that's the first passion that's in this. And now I want you to listen for this dynamic change in the life of David. This, um, the mood and the emotion switched, switches radically. Okay? And the meaning is in the passions. So it goes on to verse 13. It says, For you formed me in my innermost parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Here's where it changes. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth, my eyes saw your eyes. I'm sorry. Your eyes saw my unformed substances, right? And and, and, and in your book were written every one of the days, the days that were formed for, for me even yet when there was not even one of them. See this 
transformation from fear to peace, right? from, from this angst to praise, I praise you. Look what he says in 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Okay? How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, there'd be more than the sand. I awake and, and, you're, and, you, and you're still with me. <laughs> How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Your thoughts of me. God's thoughts of me. Derek Kidner, great scholar, Old Testament scholar, but particularly in the Psalms, and especially in this one, as he highlights this, God, clearly a life-changing alteration in David's perspective on being known. Oh, your thoughts about me are precious. The word precious he talks about extensively, Dr. Kidner, in that, that you know, gold and silver and diamonds, that whole thing. Sure, precious means ultimate wealth. And he, again, the extensive nature of these things. So many thoughts. God has so many thoughts about me. First person singular, about me, about you. God's excessive thoughts about you are of ultimate worth. What happened? What changed in David? Right? This, this radical alteration of, of, of understanding where he was recoiling and repulsed and running, where can I go, to all of a sudden running towards and counting the countless thoughts that Yahweh has towards him and counting those as precious? How could that happen? There's only one way. Yahweh allowed David to have like a shoddy lands experience with him. God let David see David from Yahweh's point of view. Yahweh says, David, let me take you into my mind when I look at you. And I see you completely. And David says, no, 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 I I have no. And then he sees God's view of David and he is overwhelmed. We're like, what? I am completely loved? That's the conclusion Yahweh comes to, that I'm completely loved? That these attributes that we've been talking about, all of his knowledge of of even every word that I'll speak before I say it, all of that is going to be used for me, not against me. His all-presence, omnipresence, that he is everywhere I've been and could be or ever will be, that is going to be used to protect me and to deliver me from evil, the power This weaving of me, to know me this deeply, is to to care for me and to guide me. So David realizes that he can drop his fig leaf. He can come around the bush. He can be naked, bent, and still unashamed. He does not care what anyone else thinks about him now. All he cares about is the way God sees him because another attribute has entered this story. God's unconditional, unrelenting, reckless love. And because God is that way, he sees David in this marvelous expression of who he is. When we talk about living by faith and the righteous shall live by faith, what are we talking about? 
if it's not this. Historically, yes, believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of people that believe those to be historically accurate, but they don't, they, they don't, have, they don't live by faith because it's living by faith in the meaning of that death and resurrection. The meaning of the death and resurrection is so that he can look at us this way, so that he can know us, and we can know that he knows us and still love us. That's what David has experienced. He's seen himself from God's point of view and is overwhelmed. Here's how Tozer puts it, right? Uh, All these attributes being used for us. There's uh, There's no tail bearer that can inform on us. There's no enemy that can make accusations against us stick. There's no forgotten skeleton that's going to come tumbling out of a hidden closet to abash us and expose us to God. There's, uh, there's, there's no unsuspecting witness that's going to come and attack our character in light of God already knowing those things. He knew us utterly before we knew him, and he called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. God knew us completely when he called us. As you grow older, you're hopefully, you know, as it goes, you'll get deeper into the river that runs through you and you'll find how deep the vial goes. God goes to the end of that and looks back in all of that knowledge, in all of that presence, in all of that understanding of how you're made, and with this relentless love, this unconditional love, says, I love you. And that's why the climax of this, look at the climax of the passage itself. It's back to the garden. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, uh, and, 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 and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in an everlasting way. The way of everlasting. Say like, there's the same word again, search me. Like, search me, refine me, sift me. Come on, keep it coming because I'm so confident in your love for me, right? This infinite value, this this, uh, uncountable thoughts that you have in favor of me. Because of that, I want you to keep going after this knowledge of me because I, I enjoy that. I am naked, bent, but still unashamed. This is the real definition of transparent living. This is what it means to be out in front because you have no shame. All you have is freedom. I mean, think of the power that a person has when he has this experience that David has gone through in in chapter 139. David is at some event and, and somebody bumps into him and says, wait a minute, I'm from out of town. You're King David. You're the one who committed adultery and then murdered the husband. Is that true? David says, yeah, and I'm king, and I've made two words illegal here, murder and adultery, so you're dead. Off with your head. Right? He could do that. He's king. It's his world. You can't talk about this. Or he would say this, actually. He would say, yeah, I did those things. Absolutely. And if you think that you've hit the bottom of my innermost being about how evil and vile I am. Oh, I'm a monster. You've just gotten started. You don't know the half of it. I am, I am my enemy. And 
God has seen all of that in his knowing. He has gone every place with me, and he has created me and knows those threads ever so well. And his thoughts about me are like the numbers of sand on the beach, and they are most valuable to me. So that's how Yahweh thinks about me. Do you want to be friends? I don't care if you'll respect me or not, right? That's the power of what we're talking about here. That's, that's what happens when people experience Psalm 139. I think everyone is supposed to. To be known and to be loved, but to be trapped because you're afraid to be known. That's the human condition. I had this happen to me more than uh, maybe twice or, or so, but certainly in my late 30s. It was not, um, it was a season. It took a long time. And it all started innocently. I was listening to someone preaching and they said, wouldn't it have been great to have been one of the 12 disciples? Good grief, traveling, you know, the, the Holy Land, top to bottom with Jesus, being with him every day, experiencing the miracles with him. I'm like, yeah, that would be great to be one of his disciples. And then I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, and the more I meditated on it, the more I mumbled about it, the more I used my imagination to put myself there, I found myself ultimately always coming. I had kind of a vision. Or, it's not really a vision. I was just imagining being his disciple, reading the Gospels. And it, every, every version led to some experience where I was at a campfire with Jesus, and it was just the two of us. We're on the beach, Sea of Galilee, Jesus, me, fire. Everyone else is gone. And he looks at me and he says, hey, Matt, can I ask you a question? He looks right through me and he stares at me and I can tell he's, he's sorting me. He's sifting me. He knows my innermost beings. And I, I'm, I'm trying to run. <laughs> Where can I go? I mean, there's no place to go. And he can see my petty jealousies, my perfected ability to look at another human soul as a piece of meat to be enjoyed and done away with, the anger that is always residing within me that is on a very weak leash. And I, when I imagined myself as a disciple, I, it was as though I'm reading a story and I didn't like where it was going and I slammed it. And I closed it, and I didn't want to talk about it again. It's like, you know what? I'm going to go back to where I wasn't a disciple of Jesus, and I'm going to keep going on and living my life. Well, that lasted about two days. Uh, and I just thought, I, I've got to resolve this. I have to resolve this because, because the question was, wouldn't it be great to have been a disciple? And I said, no. And I, if I were back in those days, I would not want to be there. Why? Because he would know me, okay? I don't want him to know me. He would know me well. And I felt like not that I was trapped so much as being torn I was torn because there was, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get away from him, and I wanted to go to him. Right? I couldn't live without him, Jesus, and I couldn't live with him because I knew he was going to ask that question. Do you, can I ask you a question, Matt? And I knew he could read my mind. And, and so I, I, I thought, I, you, can't pre, you, can't fake, you can't pretend anymore. You can't just be Pastor Matt and just going through this. Let's do this. So 
week after week and months and months turned into years and I was studying passages. I was watching videos of the gospel, you know, in, in, in film and I, I was reading great authors and I'm trying to figure out how I could be one of his disciples and survive it. You know, I, I imagine myself just staying busy, right? And, and keeping in herds. And I always came back to that fire, always. And then I'd shut the book. I'd stop the story. I'd wake up. I'd get busy doing something else. And I think some of it had to do with this, okay? No, I, was, I got greedy on this whole story. I got greedy. I didn't want him, Jesus. I didn't want Jesus just to love me as a disciple because I kind of felt like he's God. That's what gods do. They love. You know, they got, you know, God loves you. He has to. I wanted him to like me. I wanted him to actually enjoy me. And I knew that couldn't happen if he knew me. And he did. And then I thought about this Tozer quote, that he knew me utterly before I knew him. And he called me to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against me. And he called me anyway. And, and then I thought back of the, the, the garden, Adam and Eve, fig leaves behind a bush. It was Yahweh that went to them. He sought them out. He knew what they'd done. He'd seen them naked. He went there to help them. He had to get them out before they ruined their eternity by eating from the tree of life. And I started realizing, if I, 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 I said, okay, okay, I think I can understand this now. It, the attributes of God and all of his wisdom could be used for me. That there was no place to hide from him, his presence could be used to guide me. And then his knowledge of my very makeup, my innermost being, could still be understood and loved in the context of this overarching, unconditional love, this relentless love. And so I found myself back there in this vision, in this imagination, and here we go again, and we're at the campfire, and it's Jesus, and it's me, and he says, hey, Matt, can I ask you a question? And I saw him look through me, and he saw the jealousy, and he saw the anger, and he saw all the lust, and then he said this, do you want to go fishing? To think that he would want to fish with me. He would have to like me. And he'd have to enjoy me. It just never occurred to me that Jesus would ask such a simple thing as to spend time with me. That's the passion and the message and the meaning of Psalm 139. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of all of them. If I could count them, there'd be more than the sand. I wake, and you are still with me. There's no fear in being found, because you're not being found out. There's nothing that God's going to learn. And so you live by faith. That what Jesus did on the cross, his resurrection proved 
that you would not just be loved by God, but liked by him and enjoyed by him. The application for today is that you could sing the last verses of this, that you would sing, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way within me that you might lead me out of that into everlasting a beautiful God we serve. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we are grateful that all the attributes that you possess that could be used to unravel us, unmake us, humiliate us, are used to love us. Lord, I'd ask that we would have a new, renewed understanding of what it means to be loved by you or liked by you, enjoyed by you. I, I, I lift up the members of this church that have not lived through Psalm 139 that you might haunt them. You chase after them until they're alone on a fire pit, just the two of you, that they might experience the trauma and the angst of being known by you, the innermost being the river that runs through them and the vile, putrid nature of that, and yet you have chosen to love. Let us experience the freedom that comes with, with being forgiven, being free from shame, the joy of transparent living, that we might love others in the same way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.